presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Protests and elections dominated the headlines this week, and we're still in the middle of a global pandemic. We discussed how all of these issues are connected. I'm Melissa Davlin. Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week, we have the second part of our interview with Dr. Tommy Alquist on fights within the Republican Party. Then Betsy Russell of the Idaho Press, former Representative Luke Malik, and Kevin Richard of Idaho Education News give us highlights of the primary election results and discuss how mail-in voting due to COVID-19 may have impacted the outcome. But first, on Friday, Governor Brad Little held a, held a press conference discussing his administration's new plan to give one-time back-to-work bonuses to to incentivize Idahoans to return to their jobs. Out-of-work Idahoans filed more than 145,000 claims for unemployment benefits during the 11 weeks since COVID-19, since the COVID-19 state of emergency declaration. Almost two and a half times the total number of claims filed in all of 2019. Idahoans are getting back to work safely. However, more than 60% of Americans who are out of work because of the pandemic earn more with enhanced unemployment benefits than they do from their normal wages. This is not a bad thing, but it may create some hesitancy to go back to work. Now is the time for us to provide Idahoans with a financial incentive to return to work and ensure our economic rebound is swift and robust. To accomplish that, we are providing $100 million for Idahoans as return to work bonuses. We are working with the Idaho Workforce Development Council on a plan to make federal relief dollars available to Idaho workers eligible for unemployment benefits since March as a return to work bonus. The one-time return to work bonuses will be provided to the worker upon return to the workplace. Under our plans, $1,500 cash bonuses will go to those working full-time, and part-time workers will receive a $750 cash bonus after return to work. Information on eligibility and how to apply will be finalized by the Workforce Development Council and Coronavirus Financial Advisory Committee, and we will be available at rebound.idaho.gov by June 15th. At the press conference, I also asked Governor Little about the activation of about 400 Idaho National Guard troops to Washington, D.C., even as the mayor of D.C. has said she doesn't want out-of-state troops in the city. Those Idahoans were scheduled to arrive in D.C. on Friday. The governor told reporters that while it was his call, he acted on the advice from National Guard leadership. You can watch the full press conference on the Idaho Report's Facebook page, including his reaction to the protests around Idaho in support of Black Lives Matter.
Last week, I spoke to Dr. Tommy Alquist, founder of Crush the Curve, about the state of testing in Idaho and what it says about our public health system. This week, we have part two of that interview in which Alquist gives his reaction to the response from some of his fellow Republicans to the governor's stay-at-home orders. So I'm curious, you, you brought up the idea of these things being in conflict with each other, but do those interests have to be mutually exclusive when we're talking about public health, business, and, uh, and politics? I don't think they do. And I think what happens is you get people, and I'm gonna call them out today. I mean, you get people like Wayne Hoffman at the Freedom Foundation. He just is, this is, it's showtime, right? This is showtime. It's the middle of a crisis, but I mean, he's kind of an entertainer, right? He's, this is my chance to get all of my little things out there. And so I'm going to do that. And I'm sitting back going, buddy, wh why are you doing this right now? It's not helpful. And they don't have to be. Why does, why does personal responsibility in a pandemic and, and public health advice, medical advice, why does that have to fly in the face of, of liberty right now? Right? Why are you doing this? And so I don't think they have to, I think, but, but here's what I'll tell you. I think we haven't been terribly clear on messaging. And when you, when you're not clear on messaging from the president, right? I mean, when you have mixed messages almost every day coming out of the White House on what we should be doing, and then you have some communication, well, how's that coming down to the state, and how does it go to the district levels, and, and then in the middle of chaos, it's really easy to cause fires, right? Um, clarity of message would help that, but there's not clarity of message, so it's a breeding ground for, for just all of these other voices, and it's not helpful. I mean, it's just not helpful. You know, it's interesting because you called out Wayne Hoffman specifically, but he is far from the only one who's concerned about government overreach and, and small businesses. I mean, the lieutenant governor, the head of the Idaho State Republican Party, Raul Labrador, who was also in that gubernatorial primary with you. I mean, th th this is not necessarily a fringe view that there is government overreach with shutting down these businesses. So, uh, you know, I, I, as a Republican, how do you reconcile that? I don't think it's a fringe view, but what I'd ask you back is, do you think there's some political motivation there? I mean, in the middle of a crisis. Oh, that's awfully cynical, isn't it? <laughs> right. I mean, if you could take a position as Raul or Janice of, hey, I'm the one fighting for your freedom and people in the middle of this. I mean, she's she's in her position for a reason and probably is looking forward to what her next position is. Raul's in his position and probably looking for what his next position is. So I think you have to look at things they do and say in that light. People would maybe saying that about me. I mean, they may be saying, hey, what's your next run? I, I'm not running, but I'm telling you, once you go through that world, Melissa, I'll tell you one thing that's, that's horrible about politics. I had no idea. I, I mean, shame on me for going in as naive as I am. And I did not do a good job. I made a ton of mistakes. But it's a different world. It is a people think different, they act different, they look at the world differently. And now that I'm back out, I, I look at them and just shake my head. I look at Janice McGeehan and saying, "What in the hell is going on with you? I mean, what what are you trying to accomplish here? And this is not helpful." So let me just ask her this question. I would if I saw her. Those same people that are suffering, those Idahoans that you were elected to represent, do something helpful. Help them. Do something that is at least productive, but but just going and, and, and moaning and complaining about about a shutdown when what else were we supposed to do? I mean, Blaine County's on fire, right? You know, we got ventilator issues already in Idaho. We know this isn't the flu. What were you gonna do, Janice? And how do you want to help those 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 disadvantaged uh, 
minorities right now get through this so that we can stay open for business. It's one of the questions I can't wait to see. I can't wait to see their behavior because now that we're back to work, what is the next thing they go to try to spin up? Because it's not going to be helpful. And now that we're back to work, at least try to be helpful to keep us open, but they're not. Um, they're they're going to they're gonna politically uh, make adjustments and say, okay, what's the next political win we should be ready for? But that's very different than trying to help us get through this. Be helpful. You're elected to be helpful. Be helpful. Sorry, you got me going Yo. there. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm curious since since you you brought this up. If I were a small business owner, I'd be incredibly frustrated during the shutdown. If I see people lining up at these big box stores oh. every single weekend, these big box stores that are declared to be essential, while I, as a small business owner, who could probably implement social distancing much better than Walmart, is being told that I can't operate and, sh and, and sell clothes or shoes or books or whatever. I mean, there, there's an incredible amount of frustration that, you know, the lieutenant governor is is representing here. There is. And so I, so while I agree with that, why don't you articulate that position and help Governor Little understand that there is it may not be as much a timetable as opening correctly. So here, let me use an example. With Kristen Armstrong, we own the Pivot Gyms, right? I think she did an incredible job of opening those gyms back up. I would say that they are safer than almost ever you go. And I would have put those gyms up against stinking Lowe's on Eagle Road two months before then, right? So I was also saying it's not, it's not when you open, it's how you open. I use that a hundred times. It's not when, it's how, right? And, and, but my point back to Janice would be, I understand the frustration, then be helpful. Articulate that position in a way that's helpful. Work with work with the governor. Try to try to help people instead of like it. Just it's it, a lot of it is not the the it's it's how she's accomplishing her position, not what her position is. And and so I, I guess I guess that would be my plea going forward. This isn't over, right? I think you're a baseball fan. I know this. We're at the end of the first inning here, right? And 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 I'm not sure what the score is. It, all of us could score it differently, but but there's there's eight innings left to be played please be helpful in the clubhouse for the next eight innings because we've got to win. This is the state. These are people's lives. These are just, just try to be part of the team instead of trying to cause, cause problems, which has been a real frustration of mine. Right. Dr. Alquist, this uh, has been really insightful. Thank you so much for your time. No, thanks. Appreciate it. Speaking of divides in the Republican Party, Idaho saw election results this week for the state's vote-by-mail primary. I spoke to Betsy Russell of the Idaho Press, Kevin Richard of Idaho Education News, and former Representative Luke Malik about those results. Thanks so much for joining us today. Betsy, I wanted to start with you about the big headlines from Tuesday's primary election results coming through. Sure, and I think the big headline well, there were two, really high turnout and four legislative incumbents defeated in the Republican primary, all four of them. And interestingly, on election night, the results that were posted by the Idaho Secretary of State's office showed only three of them losing. And then the Secretary of State did something that I have never seen happen in any Idaho election before. The 
the final unofficial results, but they were corrected the next morning after 9 a.m. to show that actually former Representative Carrie Hanks had defeated Representative Gerald Raymond, whereas the final unofficial results that were posted after midnight on election night showed that Raymond had beat Hanks 53% to 47%. And basically, according to Secretary of State Lawrence Denny, human error was to blame. They had somehow failed to count one of the four counties in that district, though the county had submitted its full results. The other three incumbents who lost were Representative Durham Wagner of Caldwell, who's in his second term. He lost to uh, Julie Yamamoto, a prominent educator in the community. Um, Idaho Falls Representative Brian Zollinger lost to Marco Erickson. And really, I think a big surprise, uh, first-term Representative Britt Rabel, who is the granddaughter of Del Rabel, who held that seat for decades, um, and who really made a name for herself as a hard worker, very articulate, very smart in her first term, went down to former Representative Ron Nate, the Idaho Freedom Foundation's favorite guy um, in that Republican primary. There were also other significant results. I mean, we had statewide races um, Paulette Jordan won a really decisive victory in the Democratic primary for the U.S. Senate seat over Jim Vanderboss, uh, setting up a big race between Jordan and Jim Risch in November. And then both of our U.S. House incumbents defeated their challengers. And in the other contested Democratic primary, Rudy Soto from Nampa, who was kind of a you know run, young rising figure in uh, Democratic politics in Idaho won a contested primary and will be going up against Russell in November. You know, Luke, I wanted to ask you about races up north because even though no incumbents lost, there were a number of open seats from lawmakers who were retiring. Uh, what stood out to you from those results? There's a couple of races that really stood out up here in the north to me. The first one was uh, uh, Peter Riggs, who won in District Three, that's the area that is Post Falls, Idaho, up here. Um, that was a three-way race between between Riggs, Alex Barron, who's known as the Bard of the Readout, and Mark Everline, who was a former county commissioner up here. Um, and the uh, Riggs was probably considered, you know, the less far-right establishment candidate. So, so it was interesting to see that one because so many really, really. Uh, self-proclaimed conservatives have come out of that Post Falls area, so it was interesting to see that race. And then, and then um, the other one that was really a surprise, I think, for a lot of folks up here, was the open seat in District Two, which was taken by Doug Oconowitz. Again, not somebody who was traditionally endorsed by those the far-right groups that have really dominated politics up here, um, took that seat, uh, which was sort of a surprise. You know, because. So much of campaigning season happened right in the middle of the statewide shutdown, and and then we had the factor of the mail-in ballots. How much do you think that affected the turnout? I mean, ultimately, of the four incumbents that we saw unseated, two were uh, former representatives themselves, and and at least one is very active in has been very active in Republican uh, Party politics in her local community, and so. How much of a factor was that in the results that we saw, Kevin? Well, I think uh, this is such an unusual election because, you know, the normal rules of campaigning were pretty much out the window. You couldn't go door to door. You couldn't do this, you know, the small group town hall kind of meetings. So 
you would have thought that money would have been more of a factor in some of these races. And, and I guess I go back to the Ron Nate-Raybould race because I think if any legislative race really displayed kind of the, the split within the Republican Party and the money split within the Republican Party, that's the race that did it. You know, Britt Raybould got uh, contributions from, by my, my, by my count, at least 16 current or former legislators. Uh, Scott Bedke uh, contributed to her campaign. Mike Moyle contributed to her campaign. Um, whereas Ron Nate's money, a lot of it came from uh, folks aligned with the Idaho Freedom Foundation. Uh, you know, Brent Reagan from, from up north, uh, Brian Smith. Uh, Wayne Hoffman personally contributed to Ron Nate's campaign. A very clear schism between the, the mainstream Republicans and the hardline Republicans as, uh, as represented by the Freedom Foundation. Nothing new here. We've seen the split uh, election cycle after election cycle. It just seemed to be more stark this time around. At least more stark in eastern point. Idaho. Go ahead, Betsy. Exactly. Well, I, I was just going to say you asked about the, the mail-in ballots, and this was our first mail-in election ever. And Idaho has resisted holding an all-mail-in election, although it's been very successful in, in our neighbors, Oregon and Washington, for many years. Um, and the thought was that this would be a low turnout primary because there's so much going on, it's mail-in, it wasn't the biggest election in the world. And instead, um, 429,000 Idahoans requested absentee ballots. Now, not all of them cast those ballots, but that is more than uh, voted, more than twice as many as voted in any primary election since 1980. Basically, um, Idaho voters showed that they really liked the idea of using mail-in ballots, and it sharply increased the turnout almost to the level of the percentage of registered voters that we had back in 1980. It wasn't actually an all-time record for percentage. Um, but nationwide studies have shown that mail-in voting does not benefit one party or the other. It's pretty equal across the board. What it does is it just gets more people to vote. And it doesn't necessarily impact uh, any one faction of a party either. I think, you know, there's... there's you can see that there were, there were results that were favorable to those who were usually opposed to having mail-in ballots. And, and I want to talk about an example of how turnout really may have affected an election. And this is a school election. This is the West Ada School District, largest district in the state, proposed a two-year, $28 million supplemental levy, identical levy to one that's been on the books for several years, constitutes about 5% of their budget. So it's a fairly significant chunk of uh, what's used to, to pay for teachers and keep teachers on the job and keep the school calendar whole. Two years ago, voters approved this levy by a two-thirds majority. About 16,000, about 15,000 people voted in that election. It was a standalone school election uh, in March. In this primary, the levy failed. 46,000 people voted in that election. So three Three times as many people voted in this election for this levy, and, and it failed, and now the district is going to have to figure out how to weather that loss of funding in addition to uh, facing state budget holdbacks right in the middle of uh, contract negotiation season. It's a, it, it's a trying circumstance for the state's largest school district. And turnout definitely, you know, it, it's hard to look at the, that election result without looking at the turnout. 
And, and West Ada certainly isn't the only school district that is facing this budget conundrum moving forward. You know, in, in the shadow of the pandemic and the budgetary effects that we're going to see in this state for likely years to come, there were several uh, school measures that went down across the state, Kevin. Right, there were six uh, supplemental levies also in Middleton and Mountain View. Now those are districts that have had uh, some local issues. They've had a lot of uh, turnover at the top, turnover in administration. So that may have been a factor in those uh, election results. But again, those are districts that are gonna be without uh, supplemental levies going forward. Uh, a couple of bond issues failed, a plant facilities levy failed. So it was a fairly difficult night for, uh, for local school administrators. You know, we, uh, we touched on this a little bit before, but Luke, I wanted to get your thoughts on, on the Republican Party schism and how we saw that play out in these primary results. Um, you know, a lot of times I think that I as a reporter have traditionally thought of North Idaho as really the battleground for um, the, you know, the, the heart of the Republican Party in a lot of those high profile races. But the past few primary election cycles, we've really seen that shift to Eastern Idaho. Well, Eastern Idaho absolutely is a battleground, but you're even seeing it in places like the seat that was held by Burt Brackett, right? Which, which um, became a, became again, if you're looking at how the Republican Party breaks down, it would be that that right-sided faction that that took that seat as well, which, and, and that is not how Senator Brackett was identified, I think, by his colleagues in the Senate. Although so I, will, I will note that uh, Representative Christy Zitto, who won that primary for that open seat, you know, has done very well in that district previously. She beat um, then Representative Rich Wills, who was really popular in the legislature, but lost that primary in, I believe, 2016. And so, so she, you know, has seen a lot of success in that district that has also, as you said, elected Senator Burt Brackett, who's known as more of a, a moderate Republican. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and so she does have sort of that incumbent uh, feeling coming into that race to begin with. But also Brenda Richards, who was running against her, uh, was very popular in Hawaii County and, and have been a political activist there for a long time, was endorsed by former Governor Butch Otter. And there were a lot of radio ads running down in the Treasure Valley and in Hawaii County. On her behalf for that, so that was was an interesting one to watch. But it, but it goes to your earlier point, which is there there is a this, this is not a North Idaho fight anymore. There's there's a lot of um, there's an ideological war going on in the Republican Party right now, and it's not look it's not centralized to one location. And, you know, um, there are some races over in Eastern Idaho that that have uh, gone one way, and the others have gone the other. Dist uh, District 35, I think, is a really good example of that, where you had. Um, Burton Shaw do really well for that Senate seat there, and then, um, uh, but Hanks beat Raymond uh, in that race, and, and so really interesting results going both ways, even within one district. And you had the, that group of uh, legislators in one camp kind of running as a ticket, and the other running as a ticket, and the ticket still split. So in those results, so. Yeah, and, and I wanted to ask you, especially with so much money going into these races, was it a good return uh, on investment for uh, anybody other than, frankly, the Idaho Freedom Foundation, who got a huge victory with getting Ron, Nate, and Kerry Hanks back in the legislature? Uh, well, I would say I would say that uh, Senator Burtonshaw will, or Senator-elect Burtonshaw will say that that's a good investment, right? And um, 
so I don't know. I, it's that's always a hard thing to say. I'm sure there's a lot of people who are wishing their money had gone a little bit farther in those races and candidates that maybe had wished they'd spent it a different way. It's always it's a really difficult question to answer. Yeah. Well, I mean, the the defeat of Representative Zollinger. I mean, he was right on that list. He was one of the Freedom Foundation champions. Um, there were other factors at play in that race, though. Um, there was just a ton of talk in Eastern Idaho about the medical debt collection issue, and Frank Vandersloot, very prominent Republican activist in the region, um, spoke out very strongly against one particular medical debt collection company that happens to be basically owned or controlled by Brian Smith and for which Brian Zollinger is the attorney. And Zollinger argued strenuously against Vandersloot's bill on the floor of the House repeatedly and at great length after first having to cite a conflict of interest because basically the bill would have made it harder to do exactly what he's doing in his line of work. And I think maybe that didn't go over so well in the district. Oh, I, yeah, that's a really excellent point because Brian Zollinger and Brian Smith are pretty much uh, indistinguishable in terms of their character back over there in the eastern side of the state. And, and that is a war that has had a lot of money poured into it uh, from the Melaleuca side. So there's, there had to be some brand damage there. You, I, you know, another thing. I, go ahead, Kevin, please. Another thing that I find interesting about these results is um, I think that the, there's no question that the House positions itself to where it's going to be potentially more conservative next year. I, I think you have to look at the the flip of these uh, four uh, four incumbencies, the, the flip of these four seats, as a net gain for hardline conservatives. I think it's going to be potentially, depending on what happens in the fall election, a more conservative House than we saw even in 2020. But the Senate is no more or less different, really. I mean, we talked about Christy Zitto getting uh, getting the nomination in in Burt Brackett's uh, District 23, but you had two other high-profile vacancies in Eastern Idaho, where the more moderate candidate won. Uh, Kevin Cook uh, won the the seat to replace uh, Dean Mortimer, the Education Committee Chair. Uh, Doug Ricks uh, won the race to succeed uh, President Pro Tem Brent Hill. So. And no incumbents lost in the Senate. So depending on what happens in the fall, the Senate could be about as, uh, you know, about where it is right now, maybe a little bit more moderate, maybe slightly different one way or the other. So the splits that we've seen between the House and the Senate, uh, those are likely to continue. You know, I'm I'm curious you know, as as we're talking about these splits, I I, I have to ask Luke about the um, the Idaho Conservatives website and what's next for Republicans in Idaho who are speaking out uh, against people um, in the Idaho Freedom Foundation who, frankly, saw a pretty successful primary election on Tuesday. Uh, well, yeah, I. I... I think it all depends on how what sort of resolve people bring to the table in terms of these fights. And I'm, I'm guessing there will always be, you know, as the Republican Party gets more power um, because they're gaining more seats overall, and, and certainly did this last election round, gaining seats in both the House and the Senate, um, there's going to be continue to be uh, some shooting going on between members of, the, of the, that party. And so... And so I think you're gonna I think you're gonna see a role for both sides 
buying back and forth for who's going what the ideological path is going to be for the party. Thanks for watching. On Thursday, we hosted a program on race and protests in Idaho. If you missed it, you can catch it online at idahoptv.org slash Idaho Reports. Also, the Idaho Reports team has been covering those protests. You can find our web extras on the Idaho Reports Facebook page, in addition to our regular political analysis and our COVID-19 coverage and daily updates. We'll see you back here next week. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.